0: Awesome. Hey, everybody. Uh, Welcome to church this morning. It's so good to be able to be in the room and fellowship together again, just hearing everybody singing and all the laughs in the room. It's just awesome to be back together again. Uh, Well, today we're starting a new sermon series called uh, The Journey to the Cross. I forgot to mention this in the first service, but our very own Pastor Haley put together a big chunk of these thoughts that we are going to be preaching over the next few weeks. Uh, But over the next uh, little wee while, as we journey into the Easter week or Passover week or Christ's Passion week, uh, we're going to be looking at different aspects of Jesus' journey along the way. And my prayer is that as we uh, journey to the cross, that as we trace Jesus' footsteps to the cross, uh, that we wouldn't just grow in knowledge and understanding of what Jesus has done for us, but that our response would be a gratitude, thanksgiving, praise, and a life of worship. Uh, this morning, our first stop on our way to the cross is Gethsemane, where Jesus is not only praying, but he's about to be betrayed. Come on, let's pray. Spirit of the living God, I pray, fall afresh on us this morning. God, would you continue to just walk through this room, God, from the front and to the back. Make your presence known in this place. Father, I pray that as we come around your word this morning, God, that you would continue to speak to our hearts today. Father, continue to speak. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. There's a story of a Christian man uh, who for most of his life was constantly in a battle. Not a physical battle, not a health battle, not a battle of the mind, but a battle for approval and acceptance from the one person whom he adored the most, his father. And at the age of 11, he receives news that his parents are now being called to plant a church further south of where they stayed. And so for 15 years, he gave his life to serve in this church that his parents were planting. For 15 years, he had to be the first to wake up at 6.30 a.m., load the truck and make sure it was ready to go with all the gear for Sunday service. For 15 years, he had to be one of the very first people to go into the church building And make sure that it was unalarmed and the lights were on and all the windows were open, ready for everybody to arrive. For 15 years, this guy would have to roll out 100 seats, unpack the 100 seats and bring them back in, unpack, you know, the building that they were using for services. For 15 years, this man would have to give up his evenings uh, because they didn't have a church building where they gathered. And it didn't matter that he had homework to do because his priority was to make sure that his house was ready for The deacons' meeting on Monday, Sunday school teachers' meeting on Tuesday, uh, prayer meeting on Wednesday, uh, band practice on Thursday, youth on Friday, more meetings on Saturday, and then do it again on Sunday morning. For 15 years, this man would have to... uh, stay up most nights and pray through his house after his parents had carried out pastoral care sessions and uh, counseling sessions and deliverance sessions in their lounge. For 15 years, this man would have to give up what he wanted to do, what he wanted to become, what he wanted to study and where he wanted to go. But he didn't mind though, because if it meant that at the end of all of this, he was able to prove to his dad how much of a great son that he was, it meant that he could finally get the one thing that he had been longing for all of his time, his dad's acceptance. But at the age of 26, this young man finds that his parents, this Christian couple, uh, these pastors, the people that he had given up most of his life to serve were now separating. At 26, he finds that the man whose acceptance he's been battling for all of his time was actually going to walk out on him. At 26, he finds that his father was probably not the man that he thought he was. At 26, he finds that the battle he's been fighting for all this time is probably not going to end well. At 26, he is being wounded by the very person most closest to him. At 26, he finds he is being touched by rejection like never before. But that's only half the story. The people whom he walked with deserted him. The people whom he served with left him. The people whom he thought were his OG friends. The people who he ministered to. The people uh, the people who he sat with and cried with and are comforted in their moment of rejection have all left him. They've walked out on him. And so he's feeling alone and he's feeling alienated. Have you ever felt rejected before? Have you ever felt rejected? Uh, what it was like to be rejected by someone so close to you? Have you ever been touched by rejection in such a way that it's left you feeling so alone and so alienated and so isolated? Uh, it's It's had you feeling like nobody understands what I'm going through. You're applying for job after job after job after job. And the only thing that seems to be happening is rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. If it isn't your lack of experience, it's your lack of education. If it isn't your lack of education, it's that your interview didn't go well. And so you can't help but feel alienated and so rejected. And you start to ask yourself questions like, why won't anybody hire me? And so you turn to your friends, but it feels like they don't understand what you're going through. Because while they're comfortable in their jobs, and while they're able to pay your bills, pay their bills, and while they're able to rock the latest gears, you're over here without a job. And so you're feeling rejected and alienated. Perhaps you're feeling alienated uh, in your own family. All of a sudden, your family don't want to talk to you no more, and they cut you off after something that happened 30 years ago. And so they don't want to talk to you no more. You see them at the supermarket, and you go in for the hug, but they reject you. They push back and they're saying, we, we don't want nothing to do with you. And so you reach out to them, and you try to make amends, and you try to ask for forgiveness, but you find that they've changed their phone number. They've moved house. They blocked you on Facebook, blocked you on Instagram, And so you turn to your small group, but it feels like your small group don't understand because while they've got their families and while their families are intact, you're out here without a family. And so you can't help but feel rejected and feel so alone and alienated. Perhaps your friends have left you Your friends have all deserted you after finding out what your vaccination status was. And so they don't want to do life with you no more. They don't want to invite you to their home no more. They don't roll with you no more. They don't call you no more. You're being rejected and you can't help but feel so alienated. Perhaps you're feeling isolated in a relationship that you're in. You get into a relationship with somebody, you settle down, you get married, you have kids. But then you find out that this person is lying on you and cheating on you and laying with everybody else but you. And now they've walked out on you and left you with three kids to raise all on your own. You can't help but feel rejected and alienated. Perhaps you've just discovered that at a very young age, you were abandoned, that even while you were in the womb, words of rejection were spoken over you and it's now got you feeling alienated as an adult. Perhaps you're a parent in this place who was feeling rejected by your own kids. You do your best to raise them. You give of yourself. You do your best to clothe them. Give them food. Give them the best education. Put a roof over their heads. But somewhere along the way, something seems to have happened in their lives that's caused them to not want to hear from you anymore. They don't want to reach out to you anymore. They don't want to hear what you have to say anymore. And so you as a parent can't help but feel rejected. You're feeling alienated. You see, when we go through negative seasons and situations in our life, rejection starts to take the form of a tiny seed that is planted in our lives through these negative uh, situations. And the problem with this is that if we allow these little seeds to take root in our mind and in our emotions and in our heart, it can start to pervert the way that we think. And what happens is you start to experience rejection long enough, you end up feeling so alienated. You can be in church, but feel alone. You can be in your small group but feel alienated. You can be in a relationship with somebody but feel like you're by yourself. You can be hanging out with friends and walk away from your hanging out session feeling absolutely alienated. You can have the job or the cash in the world, live up a lifestyle that's mean as, and come away with that feeling like you're all alone you start to wonder, does anybody understand what I'm going through? Why do I feel so alone? Is there anybody who can understand my pain? Can anyone understand the rejection that I feel? Can anyone understand what I'm dealing with right now? And so how are we supposed to deal with the feeling of alienation, the feeling of being alone that is caused through rejection? What could we possibly do in moments where we feel so disconnected from God and disconnected from people? Let's go to God's word. I know you can breathe, guys. I know you're probably thinking, wow, uh, that was a lot. But let's go to God's word. Uh, Matthew 26, 36 to 56. Go away and read it in your own time. There is so much that we can glean from there, but I'm just reading from verse 56. Here's what it says. But all this was done, everything that was about to happen to Jesus, that, so, the scriptures, so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. God bless the reading on this word this morning. Three times Jesus prayed, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, may your will be done. He prayed a third time and said, father, if this cup cannot be taken away from me unless I drink it, may your will be done done. What is this cup that Jesus is talking about? What is the cup that Jesus is praying to pass from Him? In order for us to understand uh, why the contents of this cup is moving Jesus to pray three times to His Father, to have it removed from Him, we need to unpack the cup a little bit. All throughout the story of the Bible, what you will start to see is this biblical idea of God's judgment on His people. It's this idea of God will give you what you want. And so if you want life, God will give you life. But if you want death, God will give you over to the desires of what you want. And then that ultimately leads to to death. But that doesn't mean that uh, God is an angry, mean, unfair, and horrible God. In fact, it means He's a fair, just God. And loving God because He doesn't make us do what we don't, what He wants us to do. He doesn't force us to do any of those things. He gives us free will. And so we get to choose. But part of this biblical idea of God's judgment on His people is His anger. And it can be quite difficult to uh, describe and uh, talk about God's anger in light of the. to be to talk about God's anger. And so it's important that we view God's anger in light of the biblical narrative. Oftentimes when we read of God's anger, we take it out of the scripture and we say, oh, you know, we're human beings, we're made in the likeness of God and we're either good or bad and God is gonna kill us. You see, the problem with viewing God's anger that way is that when you read scripture and verses about God's anger, you then start to view it through the lens of, God only wants to kill me. God only wants to destroy me. No, you've taken that scripture out of the historical events of the Bible but that's a teaching for another day. And so what you start to see in the Bible is this pattern of God appoints people to be his representatives in the world. They obey God and walk in his ways, but it requires trust. They get to a point where they no longer want to trust God and then they want to do things their way. And so God then hands him over to what they want. They cry out to God, God steps in and he saves the day. And then he starts again. And then God appoints humans, Adam and Eve, to be his representatives in the world. Uh, They obey God and then walk in his ways. It requires trust. They get to a point where they no longer want to trust God. They take from the tree, and then God hands him over to what they want. And then at the end of it, they cry out to God. God steps in, saves the day. God has to go again. God then appoints new people, uh, new uh, humans to be his representatives in the world through Noah and his family. They walk with God, and they obey God, and it requires trust. But they get to a point where they don't want to uh, walk with God no more. They basically repeat everything that Adam and Eve did. And so God tries again. Only this time, God steps in. And he binds himself to one family, Abraham's family, out of all the nations. And so God tightly binds himself to one particular human family and makes certain promises to them. God is now committing himself to this family. God is now investing himself into this family, investing into this family. And he's allowing this family to be his representatives in the world. This family begins to grow and they become this nation called Israel. But again, they're not any better, they get worse. And so by the time you get to Moses and Israel and all the crew, God has now committed himself to an entire nation of people who grumble against God, complain against God in the wilderness, rebel against God over and over and over again. Now, when they grumble against God and complain and rebel and betray God, it generates the most intense expressions of his anger. All of a sudden, I now understand God's anger. Like we do the exact same thing. We do it with family. When we get angry with people, we send them a, a, a pleasant email and we ask for a meeting. And then we sit down with them and say, I'm really mad with you. We do it diplomatically. But the moment we get mad with family, man, there is no meeting. There is no, we just rip into them. The volume goes up. All the grace leaves us. We just rip into family. Why? It's because we get emotionally stirred up by people that we're emotionally connected to. We get really angry with those that we are really close to. And in much the same way, what we see from Abraham onwards is God's growing intense expressions of his anger towards the people who are most closest to him, the people that God has committed himself to, the people who God is investing himself in. But what does this have to do with the cup? You see, the Lord's cup was a regular symbol throughout the Old Testament in the prophetic and wisdom books. And this cup symbolizes God's wrath or his anger. One of the places that we find this phrase, God's wrath, is in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 25, 15 to 17 says this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. The word wrath there in that verse is the Hebrew word chema, which means heat. It's the idea of God's anger. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my heat, the wine of my anger. And so the cup here referred to in the scripture is an intense expression of God's anger. This is quite an intense image, but this image has a very concrete and very particular historical event that it's pointing to because just a year later, Jeremiah, who has just finished sharing this image with us, uh, says that the king of uh, Babylon, attacks Israel and takes Israel into exile he destroys the the temple and it's absolutely brutal all of a sudden we realize and we start to see yes this is the pattern that we've seen ever since Genesis the people rebel against God God gets angry and hands them over to what they want and throughout the Bible we see God handing them over to their enemies uh, the Arameans the Moabites the Edomites it happens over and over again And so to drink from the cup filled with the wine of the Lord's wrath, the Lord's anger, the Lord's heat is to be conquered by Babylon. We see the same cup in Isaiah 51, but the cup there is Assyria. We see the same cup in Psalm 75. We see it written all throughout the book of Ezekiel. It's this idea of God handing the people of Israel over to the consequences of the decisions or the choices that they've made. And so who could possibly save Israel from God's anger? Who could possibly save Israel from God's wrath? Who could possibly drink from this cup? Who was able to take upon himself all of the sins of Israel and the sins of the world? Enter center stage, Jesus. Jesus steps into the, onto the scene and he proclaimed the good news, but he also warned Israel against the coming judgment of God over Israel. Jesus saw that the judgment would come by the hands of the Romans. In other words, if Israel choose to do things their way and walk in their own way, disobeying God and rebelling against Him and turning away from Him, God would hand them over to the Romans. They would be dominated and conquered by the Romans. But instead, Jesus steps in and He says, I will drink the cup of God's anger. I will drink the cup of God's wrath. Uh, The guys at Bible Project, they put it this way. When Jesus stepped into the scene, He steps in as as both the prophet who perfectly represents God And there's a covenant God of Israel pursuing his people, yet... Again, when Jesus says, I will drink the cup, what he is actually saying is this. He is going to stand in the place of faithless and rebellious Israel, the nation that God is going to hand over to the Roman power. In other words, Jesus is saying, let me drink the cup. Let me experience the destruction on behalf of Israel. Let me take the punishment on behalf of Israel. But more than that, let me take the punishment that all of humanity deserved. And so we find Jesus... Moments before he is being led away to be judged and beaten and crucified, we find him in the garden of Gethsemane, praying, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He's not saying, I don't want to do this. Because the truth is, even in the midst of the anguish of his human emotions, Jesus' absolute commitment is to obey God. And the same breath that he declares his natural emotions, he also declares his perfect obedience, not my will, but your will be done. You see, Jesus could have easily aborted this mission at the 11th hour, you know, and leave us all to perish, but he doesn't consider that as an option. He's begging the father to carry out the mission some other way, but he doesn't ask the father to abandon it altogether. Why? Because as horrible as the cup may be, he knows that his immediate desire to be spared must bow before his ultimate desire to spare every single one of us. And so in the moment of Jesus' spiritual agony, this moment where human sin would come into contact with his sinless soul, this moment of utmost need, Jesus, this holy, perfect, fully human, fully divine, this righteous man faces it all by himself. He is the righteous man bearing the image of the rejected man. Just when I thought I was all alone. Just when I thought I was all alienated because of my my rejection, just when I thought nobody else could understand what I'm going through, there was one who was alienated and isolated. There was one who was touched by rejection to the highest degree. He was betrayed. There's a quote that says, the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. Psalm 41 verse nine says this, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That was like a prophetic for Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Jesus, this uh, Judas, this man who's been rolling with Jesus, who had seen everything that Jesus was doing, saw all the miracles, is now up in the garden with all of his boys, and they're about to. Be- he's about to betray Jesus, and he lets them know, Hey, you'll know which one he is. I'll greet him with a kiss. And so he comes to Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, you know, and he greets Jesus with a kiss, and Jesus says to him, Friend. Go ahead and do what you came to do. And so the people that Judas came with, they, you know, grab Jesus and they arrest him. My mind cannot fathom the, uh, the thought that even in his hour of betrayal, even in his hour where he is betrayed by his own friend, Jesus still calls him friend. You know, if that was me, I would have been like, you know, the moment he comes out, don't you call me rabbi? He went and go and sit down somewhere. But you see, Jesus, this righteous man, in his greatest hour of need, takes the cup and bears the image of the betrayed man. Here's the second thing you need to know. He was isolated. In Gethsemane, Jesus tells his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he takes James, John, and Peter with them, and they go to pray. Uh, Jesus then goes on and he, and, he, and he lets them know he became anguished and distressed. He says to them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch with me. Jesus moves on further in and he goes and he prays. He comes back and he finds his disciples asleep. And he says to them, what, you couldn't watch and and pray with me for just an hour? And he says to them, keep watch and pray lest any of you be given into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Jesus then goes away and he prays. A second time he comes back and he sees his disciples asleep. He goes away and he prays again and he comes back. They're still asleep and he says, go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. They are in this place where Jesus often met with the disciples and he connected with them. Yet in this place of connection, Jesus is totally isolated from his disciples. He leaves most of his disciples behind and he takes Peter, James and John with him further to pray. And he tells them what he's feeling. He's telling them what, how he's feeling emotionally. And then he comes back and he finds them asleep. His friends... His disciples, they cannot relate. They can't even understand. They don't get it. They can't even empathize with Jesus. And so in his suffering, in his hour of greatest need, Jesus is utterly isolated from his friends. But you see, Jesus, this holy, perfect, fully human, fully divine, this righteous man in his suffering bears the image of the isolated man. Here's the third thing. He was forsaken. Theologian by the name of John Stott says this. When Jesus is on the cross, darkness descends for three hours. At the third hour, he is crucified. At the sixth hour, darkness covers the whole land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus emerges from the darkness crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both the darkness, which communicates separation from God who is light, and Jesus' words, which affirm that Jesus is God-forsaken, Both of these things affirm that Jesus is alienated from the Father. In the darkness, he is now utterly alone. You see, he wasn't just betrayed by his friends. He wasn't just isolated from his disciples, but now he's forsaken by his Father. Jesus, this holy, perfect, fully human, fully divine, this righteous man, in his suffering bears the image of the forsaken man to every single person who has ever been touched by rejection, to every single person who has ever felt alienated, to every single person who has ever felt alone in life, you need to know today that Jesus bore your betrayal, Jesus bore your isolation, Jesus bore your forsakenness so that you would never ever be alone. Yes, I know they rejected you. Yes, I know they turned their backs on you. Yes, I know that they spoke words of rejection over you while you were in the womb, but I've got news for you this morning. Every single area of your life that is out of order, that has been tainted by rejection, every aspect of your life that's left you feeling alienated and alone can be reconciled through Jesus and the finished work of the cross. I don't think you heard me this morning. I said that every aspect of your life that's got you feeling alienated can be reconciled to Jesus, through Jesus and the finished work of the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, his death was the atonement for every single bit of destruction and sin that we chose and deserved. But it also means that Christ's death means that he was isolated so that we could have direct access to God. He was alienated so that we could be united to God. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. But the question for you this morning is, are you living with the connection to God and connection to others? that Jesus died to give you? Are you living with the connection to God and connection to others that Jesus died to give you? If I can ask the team to join in. In the words of the great hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross, it has lyrics that say this, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When I consider how much he has done for me, how can I not live for him? The cross, my friend, is both ugly and beautiful. The cross is cruel and loving. The cross is full of judgment and full of mercy. That Christian man I spoke about earlier, the one who had been fighting for you know, all of his life for acceptance, acceptance from his father all those years, he went on to travel abroad. And while abroad, God did a work in him. That Christian man, the one who had been fighting for his dad's acceptance all those years, that man was me. In my moment of alienation, in my moment where I felt so all alone, when I thought that nobody else could understand what it meant to feel alone and disconnected from their father, I knew someone who did. I knew someone who stepped into my place 2,000 years ago, and he bore the image of the rejected man so that I would never, ever be alone again. And so two years later, I moved on from my parents' church. I went to Elam Leadership College for two years. I left my job selling lawnmowers and barbecues, and I became the lead pastor of our campus here in Manurewa. I got married, and all along the way, I had moments where I still felt the sting of my father leaving me. But you know what? In those moments, I was reminded that there was someone who knows exactly how I felt. And so his sacrifice motivates mine. His endurance empowers mine. His pain gives meaning to mine. His blood takes away all my sin. His love makes me love him back. Can I encourage you today? Whenever you start to feel loneliness come knocking at your door, whenever rejection and alienation come knocking on your door, let me encourage you. Return to the Garden of Gethsemane, the place of connection. Return to the cross the place of acceptance and remind yourself that Jesus has already borne my rejection. Every time you feel lonely and, and alienated, remind yourself, no, so I serve a savior who bore the image of the rejected man so that I would never, ever, ever be alone again. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, we never like to close our services without giving people an opportunity to say yes to Jesus.